Welcome, everybody. The Friday morning edition of Unexpected Points. We will not be deterred by silly things like holidays, family, gatherings, being a normal, functioning human being in society. No, we're dedicated to football here. We're dedicated to analytics more than anything else. The top quartile, the top quartile of analytical podcasts right here on Unexpected Points. I hope you've enjoyed your uh, holiday weekend. I'll have to say I'm getting into the World Cup. Getting into the World Cup a little bit, which is a disappointment probably for those listening right now, quite honestly. And also uh, people follow me on Twitter because I'm going to have to you know, fire out some very uh, uninformed World Cup takes as we come into this, <laughs> especially the penalty kicks. Penalty kicks are insane in the World Cup. Imagine like... I, I, I compared it to a defensive pass interference was worth, you know, 15 points or something like that, 20 points, because obviously it don't happen as often as defensive pass interference, this and that and blah, blah, blah. But man, uh, the way you can turn a situation, which is maybe like a 5% goal, expected goal probability into a penalty kick, which then becomes an 80% expected goal probability. It's amazing, like how much is based upon that. I saw some stat, whether uh, correct or not, I cannot verify. I have not vetted it, but saying that 23% of World Cup goals are penalty kicks. This is not counting like the end of the game. Uh, penalty kicks back and forth. So it's pretty wild uh, how it's moved in that direction. But it is exciting. I love it. Um, but one thing I'll mention, though, and this, this goes back to the discussion I had on maybe the Friday edition of this pod a couple weeks ago about the whining about analytics and how it's ruined baseball. Um, I don't think it's ruined soccer that much, but I do think the way that teams are playing now to game the system more and more, when you have sports like soccer and baseball in particular, which are loathe to change the rules, then there's going to be a bigger effect on how it's being played. I mean, I'm still enjoying the World Cup, but you know, seeing all these 0-0 scores because teams are playing very much Uh, more defensively, which makes sense in these games where if you give up a goal, then the other team can play extra defensively and you have trouble coming back. Uh, Teams are trying to draw penalty kicks. Teams are concentrating on trying to game the system to get as many set pieces as possible, the corner kicks, other things. Uh, Those are all definitely like goal-enhancing strategies. Uh, All the fouls that are happening off the ball or outside of the penalty box in order to slow down uh, possessions and the ability to score in normal flow of play. Those are all kind of like analytical type of things, or at least they're strategic sort of makeups where you don't need the quote unquote analytics to do it. Cause the analytics is just an ability to further enhance people's um, strategic advancement here. But I do wonder if soccer being a game where they don't really change the rules a whole lot. I think that plays into baseball too. Whereas football, we're just changing rules all over the place, man. It's just like what's defense holding, what's not defense holding. Let's change that. Let's 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 change lots of stuff as far as how it was played. Uh, example um, in the grasp, right? If you watched the game, I made a comment about how Josh Allen was actually taken down on a sack during the first game, but he was being held for quite a while before they blew the whistle dead. They used to blow the whistle dead really really quickly. It killed people like Randall Cunningham in the past because they were trying to. Um, protect the passers but then they realize you know what these plays are really exciting where guys get out of the grasp and go forward 
and continue. So we're going to, you know, we're going to lay off of that in the grasp a little bit and, you know, make the game more exciting, much more willing to change. Of course, a lot more rules involved in it. It's like a, uh, a billion page rule book as opposed to a much shorter rule book in these other sports. But I do think that being having the willingness to adapt and change basketball, football, a little bit better at that. Anyway, okay. Let's get to what you guys are here for. Let's get to the footballs. Um, three games for Thanksgiving. So we'll have a triple header here to analyze on this pod. We'll have the adjusted scores. We'll go through some of the numbers and the analytics, things you may have missed, things you may not have missed, uh, the numbers of the game. All that sort of stuff. But we're going to start. We're going to go chronologically. We'll start with a very exciting and great effort here. Here, A for effort. Although that's kind of the the uh, the mantra here of the Detroit Lions is to put up good effort to cover. Always covering. Dan Campbell, a cover machine last year, the Lions. This year, doing pretty well also. But unfortunately, they go down to Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills. Steps into it, down the middle, he's open. Oh my goodness, how did he get that open? Diggs, the pass was perfect, and they're already in range for pass. Yeah, yeah, that was probably the play of the game, and it doesn't stand out as a touchdown or anything like that, but it was an absolute laser, laser that Josh Allen threw down the field on their final drive to get the field goal. It was, let me see, what was it? I guess it was first and 10. It was the first play of the final drive. They had the ball at the 25-yard line after a touchback. Laser to Stephon Diggs to the Detroit 39-yard lines, 36 yards right on the first play. Now, they got the ball back with only 23 seconds. We'll talk about the decision that the Detroit Lions had to kick a field goal on the preceding drive rather than go for it. And so they, they pick up, you know, 36 yards there. They get another three yards after that. They get another nine yards after that on a Josh Allen run to set up a closer field goal. And Tyler Bass nails the 45-yarder with two seconds remaining to win the game. Okay. Before I start, you know, not piling on Dan Campbell for that last decision, because I think it's I'm a little more ambivalent maybe than some others have been about whether or not the Detroit Lions should have gone for it in that situation. Um, let's talk to the good. Let's talk the good stuff first here for the Detroit Lions and for Dan Campbell in this game. And we'll say the number of the game, because this is what kept them in. Like if they didn't have this, there's no last second field goal. There's no worry about fourth down decisions at the end of the game if there weren't the fourth down decisions preceding this. So 19 is the number of the game. That's the win probability added by the Lions on three fourth down tries. So I'm I'm giving them credit for making it. So this is how much they win up. If you add up the win probability that they accumulated by going for it these three different times, um, it comes out to 19%. And the reason I love these tries so much, I mean, one of them was fourth and one. um, Fourth and one. Three yards away was the first one. So not, you know, hugely controversial. I don't think this. They were three yards away from the goal line. Jared Goff um, uh, sneaked it, but it ended up being a defensive offsides anyway. The key here is you have to look at, like, what's the win probability before you start these things? So the win probability was only 28%, despite the fact that we're talking about this is the, you know, third drive of the game. The score is 0-0 we're still saying that they only have a 28% chance to win going into this play. So you boost it up to 35% on that 
it's a pretty massive play for one particular play. And again, you're so low if you're the Lions that if you're kicking field goals there, you're just not getting into it that much. You're just not going to be able to boost it that far. You're only going to boost it a couple of percent by making the field goal in that situation. Even more importantly, um, later on in the game, they only had a 10% win probability, believe it or not. When Jamal Williams went for, when they went for it uh, on their own side of the field, on the Detroit 33-yard line, fourth and one, uh, because at this point in time, it's 14-7 Buffalo. This is the one that people are going to complain about the most, but like going into it, you only have a 10% win probability. Okay? So like, what are you going to accomplish by punting? What are you trying to preserve? What are you going to accomplish with the flipping the field in this type of situation? Yet, this is like the most obvious one in which they should have gone for it. But yet, because of the historical, cultural, everything else that goes into football and how it's played, being 67 yards away from your opponent's end zone, even fourth and one, even down seven against a team that's highly, highly favored against you, um, you're still going to be loath to do that. You're still going to say, I don't want to do it in that sort of circumstance. And this is what win probability models have really helped with. It's a lot easier to intuit that you should go for it fourth and one on the uh, three-yard line or on the goal line because you know, okay, if I don't get this, I pin them back and I need the points and I'm so close to scoring a touchdown. It's much harder to kind of figure out from an intuition slash tradition angle that you should be going for it 67 yards away from your own end zone in the second quarter with five minutes left to go uh, in a one-score game. It's much harder to figure that out. But then once you can start to bring together these win probability models and get some real concrete evidence based upon what's happened historically for what to happen. It it becomes a little bit better. And of course they go on to score in that drive. So eventually at the end of that drive, you know, they haven't moved up their win probability massively because of the fact that they are such an underdog. But by the end of that drive, their win probability is up to about 25% from 10% at the time when they're thinking about going ahead and running the fourth down there. And then the last fourth down for the Lions. Let me just look it up to make sure here that I have the right one. The last fourth down here, I mean, it wasn't a huge gain again, but they had a 17%. Actually, this one was a pretty big one. So a 17% win probability going into the play. Uh, this is when they're down 25-22. They have the ball on the Buffalo 40 nine yard line with about a minute left in the third quarter they go for it they had a 17 percent win probability before that on the fourth and one they convert it goes up to 30 percent so huge 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 massive number there the problem of course is um i'm sorry this is this is time left in the fourth quarter not in the third quarter so the problem of course in this is they keep on going and they eventually end up kicking the 51 yard field goal um and that's with 28 seconds left to go on another fourth and one. Now, it was a long one, I think. It looked more like almost a two, according to, to how I look at it. Now, the numbers we run on this one is a go for it, but it's closer. It's a 1.6% win probability gain if you go for it. So it's closer. And the interesting thing here is, even if you succeed when you go for it, you're not necessarily going to win the game. I mean, it's pretty close, though. 
you're pretty close. You still have to make a longer uh, field goal in this situation. So, yeah, it's pretty close. The problem is, of course, giving the ball back to Josh Allen in this situation with that offense. You might think optically 30 seconds preventing a field goal. That's something our defense should be able to do. But it's just really, really hard in the NFL to do that now. And I know the 30-something yard pass looked improbable that I had the audio for, for Stephon Diggs. But the thing is, even after that pass, they still had a lot of time and they were kind of grinding clock and just gaining a few more yards before kicking the field goal. So the situation really was that Detroit, again, if you want to win the game, if you want to win the game, just tying and have the ability to go to overtime is not as valuable as you think. Again, the goal is not to go to overtime. The goal is to win the game. So it's kind of like a two-bird situation here when you go for it. You eliminate um, if you make it. You basically eliminate Buffalo's chance of having another possession in this game and being able to do anything. So if you make it, worst-case scenario, you go to overtime. But you also give yourself a chance to win the game in regulation, which is huge because if you're going to overtime, I know it's a close game, but if you run the numbers on here, it's still Buffalo's going to win over 60% of the time in an overtime period. Obviously, the coin flip matters. All this stuff matters. But because they're such a huge favorite in this game. Uh, so just playing a 51-yard field goal. Now, they even made the field goal. Remember, Detroit missed a field goal, and they were ruining that earlier this year when it gets the Vikings, that they went for a longer field goal and then missed it and then lost the game. They did make this field goal, uh, not not a gimme by any stretch for Badgley, who missed a very easy field goal earlier in this game. Um, so yeah, he should have gone for it, but we're not going to get we're not going to hit on Dan too much. I'm going to try to focus on the positive here and say Dan Campbell added almost twenty percent in win probability when he did go for it earlier in the game. Let's go over the particulars for this one. So Buffalo was a nine and a half point favorite. So that's what I'm talking about when we're calculating, you know, who's going to win in overtime, how likely it is, all that sort of stuff. That nine and a half point. Spread is more important for predicting that than what happened during the actual game, even though it was closer, obviously much closer than that in the actual game. 28-25 Buffalo adjusted score, 26-25 Buffalo. So pretty close. Um, Detroit was really in this game a lot. Very, very close uh, game in this one. And again, you know, you don't talk about the moral moral losses, moral victories, moral losses, whatever you want to call it. Um can't get into it too much, but interesting, interesting game here. You know, Jared Goff played pretty well. Pass rush is still not quite back for Buffalo. 0.2 EPA per play for Goff. He had the the safety, which was, I don't know if it was a bonehead type of play, but I do think you have to have a little bit more awareness not to take the safety in that circumstance, and that really hurt them a bit. Um, Josh Allen now, turnover-worthy play master. Now, <laughs> Josh Allen had the interception where – it was a hell of a play by first um, Rodriguez to catch it. And then, and then it ended up being intercepted by someone else. Um, so it was a hell of a play for the interception, but still Allen were a little bit, you know, it's a little squirrely here that he continues to have the turnover issues. He had another turnover with the play also um, that did not count as an actual turnover in this game, which brings down his grading a bit in this game. And then also his EPA per play was actually less than Jared Goff. But the Bills are pretty good running the ball. Josh Allen was effective as always running the ball. I did wonder going into this one whether the UCL would keep him from running because he only had a handful of yards last game against the Browns. Nope. 
did not keep him from running at all. 78 yards, a touchdown, 10 carries here for Josh Allen, which boosted up the fact that passing the ball, only six yards per attempt and the interception, three sacks that he took in this game too, which normally doesn't take a lot of sacks. It's not a lot for 47 dropbacks, but it's not nothing. Also at the same point in time, uh, Jamal Williams fumble was a huge play in this game. Um, that's one of the things that also like brings down rushing the value of rushing generally is you mix in holding calls and the negatives that come from holding calls. And then you mix in fumbles, which don't happen as often as intercept interceptions, but the randomness factor is much, much higher there. And just like you have such a lower ceiling for running plays versus passing plays that the fumbles are killers. Um, so Jamal Williams fumble second biggest play, uh, play of the game as far as expected points added. Uh, the five expected points lost for the Detroit Lions on the Jamal Williams fumble in the second quarter was a big one. Um, the only play that was bigger was the Josh Allen interception that I mentioned earlier that Anzalone uh, intercepted that uh, Rodriguez got his hands on in that one. And that's because that was a first and 10 play down near the goal line. That was such a huge play. Other than that, you know, Badgley missing the 29-yard field goal is actually the third biggest EPA swing in the game, minus 3.7 EPA. It might be weird that you'd say, like, how can you lose more than three points missing a field goal? Well, you lose the three points and you give up uh, the field position. The field position goes back on that sort of one, two, back to where you're kicking it. So that's kind of how it all works out in that in that scenario. Uh, other big plays in this game. Josh Allen, a Isaiah McKenzie touchdown on third and six for 19 yards. That was a big play. 3.3 expected points added. Uh, another deep pass to Isaiah McKenzie for 30 yards on second and 21, where they gained 30 yards. That was a three expected points added. And then, you know, later on in the game, there was a big, big play here where. Well, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to mention Jamal Williams fumble, but we already got into that one. How that was a big play. There's another play where Josh Allen actually fumbles, but then recovers it himself. So it was no big issue there. Um, overall in this one, a lot of problems with the Lions rushing the ball early in the game. They only had uh, 0.3, they had 0.3 EPA lost early rushing the game, but I think that's mostly related to the Jamal Williams fumble. All right, so let's look at where this game comes out. Um, I hope, you know, the, the good effort here kind of saves Dan Campbell's job going into next year. And in some ways you could say it's not the worst thing in the world that they're losing some of these games and getting to a four and six, uh, you know, continuing to, to lose games here because after winning three in a row, because you don't want to be, you don't want to have too good, good of a record, right? <laughs> For this team. I mean, you're not going to catch the Minnesota Vikings. You're probably not going to be able to fall into a playoff spot. You have the Jags, the Vikings, the Jets, the Panthers, the Bears, and the Packers. You can actually get a decent amount of wins here. It all depends on, like, the quarterback position. I know golf has been functional, but I do think it would be good to be, have a chance, at least, to draft someone else. One of the keys here, though, for the Lions is you got that Rams draft pick. So the Rams are falling fast. Matthew Stafford, who knows if he'll be shut down for the rest of the season or not. So 
you don't want to play yourself out of a great pick here if you're the Lions, but you also have the Rams draft pick, which ends up being huge. And for Buffalo, what does this do for them? It doesn't move them a lot in the playoff um, Super Bowl probabilities because they were such huge favorites in this game. Anyway, they're still behind Kansas City in their probability to win the conference championship and go to the Super Bowl. They're at 25% versus 33 for Kansas City, and they're still down also in their Super Bowl odds, which, of course, makes sense. If you have a less lesser chance to make it to the Super Bowl, you're going to have a lesser chance to win the Super Bowl. But good victory for the Bills. The one concern, of course, is still we're talking about uh, Josh Allen and these turnover-worthy plays. I don't think it was egregious in this one, but it's something to keep on the radar. When he is you know, humming and there's no problems going on here, uh, then you have nothing else to worry about. But actually, he had three turnover-worthy plays, according to our numbers in this game. So remember, he already has the league lead in turnover-worthy plays. Three more in this game. We only had one actual turnover. Something to continue to monitor going forward for the Bills and for Josh Allen. All right, let's get to the second game of the day here. We're going to go to Big D with the New York football giants, the battered and bruised and injured New York football giants coming into Dallas. Can't get it done as Dak Prescott and the and the Dallas offense, outside of a couple of interceptions, was on point. What a catch. Big Daly. Prescott back for throw. Caught. Schultz in. Touchdown, Dallas. Yeah, Dalton Schultz with a couple of scores here in this one. Um, and the overall offense, I think, for the Dallas Cowboys is the story here. We saw them absolutely destroy the Vikings last week on both sides of the ball. And while they were okay, they did okay defensively against a, again, a beat up um, Giants offense. Well, I guess a beat up Giants defense too on the back end. Um, it's really the offense for the Cowboys, which was uh, which is what we want to talk about. The number of the game here is 83.9. If you want to round up 84. So it's an 84% series conversion rate for the Cowboys. It's a 98th percentile type of number. So what a series conversion rate is. Maybe I'll just say that. So every time you get into a first and 10, how often are you getting a new set of downs? You're converting to eventually get a new set of downs. They did that about 84% of the time. Again, I mentioned it's a 98th percentile for a single game. And if you want to put this in the context of like, what does it mean if you extrapolate over an entire season, I mean, the best success rate, series conversion success rate that we've seen since 2000 for any team over a course of a season is the 2007 Patriots, you know, Brady MVP, Randy Moss breaking all the records, all that sort of stuff. They were at 81.4%. So this is higher number than like the greatest offensive season ever type of number if you extrapolate it. I mean, it's only a single game, so you can't really extrapolate it, but it's a way to at least think about how incredibly successful they were offensively in this game. Um, but we get to the numbers of the game. You know, it's maybe not as high of an adjusted score as you might think based upon that number. They were 10-point favorites. They win by eight points, a late touchdown there for the Giants. End up making this officially a one-score game. So Brian, uh, so Dayball finally taking uh, Dayball finally taking a one score loss here after being so good. I think they were um, seven and one in one score games coming into this, six and one in one score games coming into this. So 
finally get a one score loss here. Of course, they they lose whenever it's a two score game here for the Dallas Cowboys. Adjusted score 27-22 Dallas. So fairly close. I was a little bit surprised by that because of that super high offensive success rate for the Cowboys. But when you look internally at some of the numbers for the um for the the Giants in this game, they actually did all right. You know, offensively, even if you look at like yards per play, yeah, Dallas was 6.2 and, but you know, the Giants 5.1, it's not that bad. A lot of it was like third and fourth down efficiency ended up being huge in this game. And again, that could be a little bit less stable than you'd think. Dallas was seven of 11 on third down. The Giants were only three of 11 on third down, but what really kept the Giants in this game were the two turnovers from Dak Prescott, two interceptions, one of them, a turn of worthy play. Another one was a tipped pass, and those two turnovers, the first one was negative 4.3 expected points, and the next one was negative 3 expected points. So there was 7.3 expected points lost by the Dallas Cowboys on those interceptions, and they also missed a 46-yard field goal in this one near the end of the game. So it didn't really matter as far as the outcome is concerned, but it's what kept it to the, you know, that eight point game is the fact that Maher missed a field goal, which is very makeable for an NFL kicker to make a 46 yard field goal. Um, The giants offense was also somewhat dependent upon big plays in this game. Their over EPA overall EPA per play was slightly negative. Their success rate was even a little bit more on the negative side. They did have a really big play by Darius Slayton, a 44 yard catch down to the one yard line, which is one of the bigger uh, plays of the game that helped keep them in it. But the inability to convert on third down and then the inability to convert on a couple of fourth downs really crushed uh, the Giants' chances of winning in this game. Overall numbers here. Let me look to see here. Yeah, Saquon Barkley, second straight game where he's had a lot of problems being able to rush the ball. Not as bad this time, just didn't have a lot of carries. Only 11 carries in this game, 39 yards, 3.5 yards per carry. Is not great, but this is two straight games here where Saquon's had some trouble running the ball. And Darius Slayton has emerged as at least being a somewhat reliable option. I mean, it was mostly on that one long catch there, but no one has a worse situation here when it comes to the wide receivers than the New York Giants. So him being able to do something uh, is probably going to help him out here. And also, yeah, Barkley, as far as he got the touchdown, which kind of saved him from a fantasy football perspective, because even receiving four catches, 13 yards, you know, not, not too much there. Uh, targeted six times though. So he had a lot of targets. So only getting 13 yards on six targets is not very efficient at all. Uh, Michael Gallup, a great game, making some big plays some big catches in this one. Uh, Not eye-popping numbers because they only had 260 overall passing yards in this one, but 5 for 63 is pretty good. CeeDee Lamb, 6 for 106. Dalton Schultz, as I mentioned, got both of the touchdowns. Four catches, 31 yards there for him. And rushing the ball, Zeke, the return of Zeke, 5.8 yards per carry and a touchdown. Uh, 16 carries for 92 yards. And then, of course, Tony Pollard coming in, 60 yards on 18 carries, 169 total rushing yards for Dallas. So they had everything working in this game. Not only the the pass the passing, but the rushing ended up being huge here and third down conversions were also really really big for them. So where do they stand now? The Cowboys after this one because I think the Cowboys are clearly in that second tier of teams in the NFL. 
if we're going to look at tiering, and this aligns with, if you look at um, Ben Baldwin, friend of the pod, he puts out numbers, which are, I believe, calculated by uh, a website called InPredict, where it just looks at the it looks at the the lines for the 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 betting lines for the current week. So week twelve in this circumstance, and this is looking at before what happened in this game. So the, the, the what happened yesterday, the current week it looks at, and then it looks at next week's lines and based upon those two things now there's some noise in there because there could be injuries in these two games that are not necessarily going to continue for the rest of the season but based upon that you can build a model which looks at all of the combining lines together to get kind of a market-based derived power ratings for how much you believe a team would be worth an average a team should be favored by versus an average team on a neutral field so the way those numbers work out and i think this comports with how most people are thinking about it right now is Buffalo or Kansas city. Probably most people think Kansas city is the best team in the NFL. It's close. It's really close between those two. I know Josh Allen, again, the turnover problems that I mentioned before. So optically maybe it looks a little bit worse, but that stuff can get cleared up pretty quickly. I still think they're a better defensive team. um, Even though the defense has been a little bit less reliable in recent weeks. So we got Dallas and we got Kansas city. And then we have, Anywhere from a two and a half to three point drop for the next tier. So a huge drop to the second tier of teams. And as of right now, according to the market, the second tier of teams, three teams, they are the San Francisco 49ers. This is the NFC top tier. So we have the AFC top tier is like the top tier of the NFL. The NFC top tier is second. It's the 49ers, the Eagles, and the Cowboys. So the Cowboys are in there. And with this victory, I think they'll get bumped up even higher where – you know, they could be the third best team in the NFL right now. You, you know, I know the Eagles had that huge streak to start the season, but I think the fact that you have a little bit better passing game there, the fact that I think you have a little bit better defense. I know the Eagles defense is really good. They've added a bunch of people. So it's maybe a coin flip between those two, but I think the, the, the Cowboys with Micah Parsons and the pass rush there had shown a little bit more dominance on that side. But again, it's more of a coin flip situation. But I think the reliability with the team that can run the ball pretty well and a quarterback who can pass the ball more reliably um, maybe gives them a slight edge. It's really, really close, though, between those three. And then we go down to the next tier. So before we get to the sixth best team in the NFL, there's a big gap. So Dallas is in this second tier that's a, that's a full gap away from teams when we start going down to the Ravens, the Bengals, the Dolphins, the Bucks, maybe the Chargers. And the Vikings, who we'll talk about later, you like the Vikings, the Vikings with all their wins, um, at least going into this week, were not seen as really being close to the second tier, the, the top tier of NFC of other three NFC teams. Uh, again, we'll talk more about the Vikings. So I don't want to get I know Vikings think I'm a Vikings hater. Um, some people think I'm a Vikings hater. But listen, hey, I, I'm not deriving these numbers. I'm not in Vegas. You know, uh, I'm not at sports books coming up with all these numbers. This is what I'm telling you. Go ahead. Put your money on the. Um, Put your money on the uh, on the Vikings if you think all of this stuff is incorrect, and these guys and these people need to be dunked on uh, for what they're putting in there. And uh, a couple other numbers though, we'll talk about from pass rushing. It's interesting. Micah Parsons didn't have a great grade in this game, but he did have two sacks on four pressures. Demarcus Lawrence with seven pressures in this game, um, and Dorrance Armstrong, number ninety-two. Dorrance Armstrong five. 
pressures in this game. So a lot of pressure there, but actually a decent amount of pressure from the Giants too. Uh, Kadon, uh, Kayvon Thibodeau, 11 pressures in this game. Holy moly, zero sacks though. So that shows you some of the value of Dak also. Really good at avoiding sacks too. 26 pressures here, the same amount as the Cowboys from the Giants, but zero sacks. Although they did, Dak did get hit 11 times. So that's a lot of hits there, but he never ended up taking a sack in this game. Uh, talking about the Giants now. So let's talk about the G-Men, where they're standing playoff-wise versus team strength. There's going to be a huge disconnect here, playoffs and team strength. I think this is one thing to think about too. When people get so mad at the nerds for saying X team is not that good um, or get mad, I guess, at Vegas, uh, or get mad at the bookmakers for saying X team is not that good because the Giants, and again, these numbers were are affected by a lot of the injuries that they have. But the Giants going into this game were ranked at 25th in the power rankings. Now, again, injuries and stuff boost them up. So I would say they're probably more close to being in the 17 to 22 type of range for their actual team strength. And I know Giants fans are like, ah, how can you say that when, you know, going into this game, the the record for the Giants, they were tied. You know, they had a tie seven and three tied record, right? With the um, Dallas Cowboys going into this game. Well, it's all those one score games that we talked about before. Again, seven and one in one score games. Now seven and two, if you count this as a one score game, although I think this was not really close to being a one score game. And then they've lost their the, the two score games. And this has happened most recently. This is starting to come around. You know, they lose 31-18 to Detroit. Um, they lose 27-13 to Seattle before the bye way back in week eight. So they have a couple of those games. Uh, they're more of the one score, I'm mean, the two score variety, which they ended up losing. And this one was kind of a two score sort of game. But you don't have to worry about what anyone thinks about your team if you're a, a Giants fan. Uh, you still logged those seven victories. That still happened. And while the division is probably like near a 0% chance of having the ability to take over uh, Philadelphia and Dallas in this one after this game, you still got over a 50% chance according to our numbers, which see, you know, which see you as a pretty weak team relative, like an, like a bottom half team, not a bottom 10 team, but a bottom half team still has like a 55% chance of making the playoffs. So still more likely than not to make the playoffs this season. I think that's the key. Get healthy and improve the internals of this team. And hey, maybe you can do something here. Uh, upcoming schedule, you got the Commanders twice in three weeks. It's kind of a weird bunching of the schedule here. So you got the Commanders, Eagles, Commanders, Vikings, week 16, which will be really interesting. That'll be like the, the fraudulent bowl. <laughs> where I get it. It's an overstatement to say fraud for anything, but it'll be, it's the two teams, at least as of last, a couple weeks ago, were probably seen as being the least resembling their actual records. Uh, maybe with the Jets, a close third on that one. So you play the Vikings, then you have the Colts and the Eagles to finish the season. So, eh, not, not a great schedule here. Eagles twice, Commanders twice, Vikings, Colts. No gimmies. No gimmies in that schedule um for the Giants so we'll see if, if they'll keep it together and end up squeezing through again it's basically a coin flip when we're talking about the playoffs for them now 
uh, going forward. All right, before we get to the third game that we'll review here, let's pay the bills. Um, not the Buffalo Bills, but the podcast bills here. Keep my uh, keep the lights on here at my house. Uh, and let's talk about DraftKings. Maryland. Are you in Maryland, people? I'm in Maryland. We just got, I'm getting like 5,000 messages from people about bonuses that are just throwing money at you. Hey, might as well take that money while they're throwing out. Customer acquisition, I believe is a technical term for free moolah that's being thrown at a bunch of people to sign up at a bunch of different places. So go ahead and take advantage here. And in fact, DraftKings has a, has a deal right now. Bet $5 on any NFL team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. Right now, you can also get 100% boost with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app, place a same-game parlay, and combine multiple bets like which team will win, player props, total points, more. The more legs you add, the bigger the boost, the bigger your shot to win big. It's a lot of bigs. Uh, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use code PFF. Place a $5 bet on any NFL team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. Only a DraftKings Sportsbook app with code PFF. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Western and Southern, sponsor of the Unexpected Points podcast. While you focus on your roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow. Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance investments and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day, team up to understand needs and address goals with the game built with the game plan built just for you. Get started at westernandsouthern.com slash PFF. And lastly, Manscaped. I think this is a little bit out of date here, this Manscaped ad read, because it was saying this should be the ultimate Thanksgiving dinner topic. So hopefully you got your chance to, <laughs> to talk about your ball trimmer. Uh, and your and your uh, crop reviver toner and your weed whacker or whatever the hell else these things are called here um, during Thanksgiving dinner. But if you didn't, I'm sure you're still around family for a couple more days here. So you're still going to have a chance to tell them all about the performance package 4.0 and the 20% off you can get with promo code unexpected. As I mentioned, you have the lawnmower 4.0. The, the, the 1.0 is just in 2.0. Those are trash. 4.0, lawnmower, trimmer, the weed whacker, ear and nose, hair trimmer, the crop preserver, ball deodorant. Like how different, like what's ball deodorant? Is it like a powder? I have to see this. You don't, you, you're not going to like use it like a normal underarm deodorant, right? Um, performance boxer briefs and a travel bag to hold it all. So you can walk proudly down the street and everyone knows what's going on down in the your nether regions i i I put that in there that's not in the ad read um think your holiday spread is good it's time to give thanks to manscaped performance package 4.0 or as i like to call it the perfect package for your package giving manscaped is the ultimate hack to become the family favorite 20 percent off free shipping code unexpected that's 20 percent off free shipping code unexpected be thankful this holiday season for the best gift of all manscaped your balls will thank you. All right. Um, let's get to the last game here of the night. Uh, I like to check Twitter sometimes to like see what the fans are complaining about after these games. And man, Patriots fans are not happy about the referees after this one. We'll talk about that in a second. But first, let's 
get to uh, my old audio. Whoops, I should take this. Should have been ready on this one. The audio for this one. Uh, New England, Minnesota. Minnesota pulls it off at home with some big performances from Justin Jefferson, Kirk Cousins, and the passing game in particular for the Vikings. Cousins back to the air as he throws downfield. It's hanging in the air, but it's caught by Jefferson again. Yeah, that was a huge pass between multiple defenders. Kirk Cousins under pressure, notoriously not a great player under pressure. We really drilled this pass to Justin Jefferson way down the field near the end of the game, set up the eventual game winning touchdown. But what I want to focus on, and maybe this will go back to some Patriots fans complaints in this game is like, what are the real squirrelier high variance sort of things that can go wrong for a team or go right for a team that ends up having a huge impact on the game. And that's going to bring us to the number of the game. I'm say eight here. And that's the expected points gained on two special team plays for the Vikings. You have the 97 yard kick return by Kenny Nwangu. And they also had a running into a kicker penalty, which converted a fourth and three for the Vikings, a huge play later on in the game. And those two plays, you know, They're going to go your way sometimes. They're not going to go your way other times. A third play, which I didn't put in here because it's a little bit more difficult to quantify, would be the Hunter Henry touchdown that got overturned, which then was turned into a field goal. What's really weird, and I was not listening. I couldn't hear the broadcast. I had too many, like, kids running around and other distractions here. So I couldn't hear the broadcast. But when I looked at that play afterwards, I could see how maybe it wasn't a touchdown. And I know... You could say he didn't survive the ground as far as keeping the grip on the ball. But to me, I don't know. Did the ball, was the ball really supported by the ground? I thought his hand was kind of underneath it. So my first thought when I saw this was hand underneath it. I mean, the ball touches the ground, but I thought he kind of had control of it. Then he rolls over Hunter Henry, loses control of it, but the ball never touches the ground. And he regains full control of it at that point. So I thought it might be, not a touchdown, but they'd have it like inches away from the goal line and the ability to go for a fourth down on that one. So I didn't realize the rule is actually if the ball touches the ground at all, even if you kind of had control at that moment, if you don't survive control, I guess, on the rollover and everything, then the fact that it touched the ground, even though your hand was really supporting it, the you didn't need the ground to make the catch, right? Like you would have made the catch even without the ground there. Um Then it gets reversed. I don't know. Maybe that's a rule to look at as possibly saying we give him the catch on that one. I can understand if he didn't have full control, not giving him the reach, but giving him the catch, maybe. Uh, Again, there's a handful of plays there, which ended up hurting the Viking. I mean, the the Patriots in this one and, and the Vikings coming away with the victory. All right. Particulars in this game, Vikings two and a half point favorites. At home, which kind of lends to, you know, maybe the Vikings aren't as great as some people think. I mean, the Patriots are a fine team, but they're not a great team. Vikings couldn't even get up to three points at home in this game on a short week. 42 and a half total in this one. So they go way, way, way over the total on this one. 33-26 Minnesota. Adjusted score 27-25 Minnesota. So more narrow because of some of these special teams issues that I talked about in terms of number of the game.
Um, what's interesting in this one is that the teams had the same exact EPA per play in this game. So the offenses were pretty similar, yet the Vikings had a little bit higher success rate. So that helped them a bit. Kirk Cousins' numbers were really good in this one. Uh, Mac Jones had a good game, but not great. They also they ran the ball more effectively. It was basically like the Vikings just stunk at running the ball uh, in this one. And that's what held down their numbers um, quite a bit here. So it was really a Kirk Cousins-driven performance, which no one likes to hear <laughs> for the Vikings because they had 57 yards on 27 carries, uh, you know, rushing the ball. And Kirk Cousins did add an interception, and it was a big interception, but he made up for it for the fact that beyond that, you know, 8.1 yards per attempt and a few touchdowns for Cousins. And another sort of variance type of thing that went against New England in this game, which allowed a higher series success rate and conversion rate for the Vikings, is the third down and fourth down success. So the Vikings were 8 of 15 on third down. The Patriots only 3 of 10 and 0 for 1 on fourth down. But the fourth down was like a desperation fourth and, I don't know, what was it, 16 or something like that. Toss it up in the air and see what happens. Um, so that makes a big difference. And if you look at like the most simple sort of way to measure offensive efficiency, this is when it looks, you know, you're, you're kind of a little bit upset as the Patriots that you couldn't get this win because they averaged 7.4 yards per play versus the Vikings only averaging 5.4 yards per play. 7.4 yards per play is a really good number. 8.7 per pass. But again, the third downs, not able to convert those. Being in the red zone and converting those into touchdowns. Whereas on the other side, the Vikings converted three out of the five times they were in the red zone. Um, Six penalties for 55 yards against the Patriots, including that huge five-yard penalty, only 20 yards of penalties for the Vikings. And, and we mentioned the special teams TD for the Vikings. So a lot of things came through for the Vikings in this game. Again, my numbers have them as being slightly better teams still internally on top of all that because of the passing game success that we give a lot of, that my numbers give a lot of credit to. But this is really one that could have gone either way, really could have gone either way. And, you know, the Patriots probably win this game four out of 10 times. Uh, unfortunately, it did not come They did not come away with the victory this time. I guess we'll highlight Justin Jefferson too. all the numbers you saw like a billion times about how he has the most passing yards for any receiver over his first three seasons. Now more than Odo Beckham Jr. More than Randy Moss, nine catches for 139 yards here and a touchdown. Adam Thielen finally getting his touchdown here. And then TJ Hawkinson with another score. Um, Mac Jones, I mentioned before, 9.8 yards per attempt. He did have three sacks for, for 18 yards, which hurt. He did have trouble converting third downs, which hurt. But a good game for Mac Jones, uh, who has struggled mightily so far this season. And the Patriots couldn't really run the ball either. If you look at it, they had 30, you know, they had 42 dropbacks in this game. They only had 13 rushing attempts. Ramondre Stevenson. Not bad, 36 yards, but only seven carries. Damian Harris, 16 yards on five carries. And then Kendrick Bourne, negative seven yards on his one carry there. Uh, what, what are the teams looking at going forward here? Let's talk probabilities. I mean, Minnesota was already like a 99% chance to make the playoffs, so that continues. 
they're up to 99% chance now to win the division. So the division is completely locked up at this point. And even though our numbers, again, the, the market, where's the market? Let's get to the market again. Uh, I know everyone hates the market, Minnesota Vikings fans. But even though I know the market says you're about the 10th best team in the NFL, 10th, 11th best team in the NFL, pretty close to the Patriots, honestly, according to these numbers. It doesn't matter what the market says because you've banked all of these victories now, right? It doesn't matter as far as your playoff probability. It matters a little bit as far as your ability to um, win the conference, get that number one seed. But still, having those victories helps a lot to get that number one seed and get that crucial buy in the first week, you know, nipping on the heels of the of the Philadelphia Eagles now. And the division is completely locked up. 15% chance, though, to win, to go to the Super Bowl, which is basically only a little bit less than Dallas at this point. And it's less than Philadelphia, but still the fifth best in the NFL. So I know we see you as the 10th or 11th best team, but we're not saying you don't have a great chance to go to the Super Bowl. We're saying you have the fifth best chance to go to the Super Bowl because of those victories that you've already logged and the fact that you have the easiest schedule in the NFL remaining this season, which is really going to help uh, to potentially get that number one seed. You got Jets, Lions, Colts, Giants, Packers, Bears. A lot of winnable games there for the Vikings. And chance to win the Super Bowl, Vikings fall down to six there, less than the 49ers. Um, but still, you'll take six best chance to win the Super Bowl, even mm-hmm. if the haters at PFF and in Vegas don't see that you are that good. All right, let's get to um, the Patriots here. Where do we stand here? 40% chance to make the playoffs. So not that bad. Would have been a huge leverage game for them, though, because if you would have won this game, again, very winnable game. Um, Game that, again, I say you win 40% of the time in this type of game, maybe even 45% of the time in this type of game. If you would have won this game, the chance to make the playoffs would have been 65%. Oh, I'm sorry, no, 55%. So it would have been about a 15% swing. So it's a big one. Uh, Basically, no chance to win the division at this point with Buffalo and Miami so far ahead and, you know, a trickling chance of making the playoffs. But at least you saw a lot of positive stuff, I think, with the passing game here for New England because the defense has come to play, uh, especially the pass defense have come to play, even though they failed somewhat in this game so far. If you look at the look-ahead lines for next week, and again, this is static. I'm not looking at adjusted based upon what happened here, just an idea of the team strength here for these different teams. We have the Vikings as three and a half point favorites at home against the Jets. Who knows who the Jets quarterback will be at that point in time. Um, But again, that's not a massive number for the Jets. It's kind of surprising. The Jets are still seen as being pretty high up there in the 15th, 16th sort of range for team strength, uh, much higher than the Giants uh, this, this season. And then, for the uh, for the Patriots, five and a half point underdogs. We'll see if that gets stretched out further or if it gets a little bit closer in based upon a decent performance for the Patriots here. Five and a half point underdogs at home to the Buffalo Bills. That could be an interesting one if you wanted to sprinkle a little something on that uh, on our old DraftKings.com. All right, let's talk real quickly. I ran the numbers. Unfortunately, there's not a lot I like this week when it comes to uh, my adjusted scores based projections for what the point spreads should be this week. I did run the numbers and we have all this stuff going on with all the quarterback changes. I mean, the new quarterback 
and for the Rams. Um, we'll see if Kyler Murray plays or not in his game. We got uh, Kyle Allen now in, I don't know if that matters that much, but Kyle Allen in for, you know, the Texans. We got Sam Darnold now coming in for Carolina. That probably doesn't matter that much either. But all these different quarterback changes make the projections a little bit harder this week. I mean, for instance, we're talking about a 15 and a half point favorite. <laughs> the Kansas City Chiefs are against the Rams right now. Like, how do you bet a 15 and a half point spread in, in the NFL um, against the Super Bowl champs? Now, I know Bryce Hopkins. We'll see what he can do there. Uh, of course, like my numbers would say, you just blind bet any team that's that big of an underdog. But I don't know, man. With these quarterback changes, it's really tough to tell. I don't know. I don't know Jack about Bryce Hopkins other than the fact that he can move. So maybe that's going to help uh, for them there. Okay. So num- teams, numbers that my, my teams that my numbers do like in this one, always the Browns. Sorry guys. I don't know what to say. Always like the Browns Browns, three and a half point underdogs at home against the bucks. The bucks are coming off of a buy. So that makes it a little bit tougher in this one. But if you can get that half point, that's pretty huge there. There, So the Browns always, we'll see if they can come around on their last game before Deshaun Watson comes back. Season's not over for them, but it's a little close to being over. So that's uh, that's troubling for them. And then another one is the aforementioned Houston Texans with Kyle Allen. Again, I don't know what it means here, but they're 14-point dogs against the Miami Dolphins in Miami. A little bit too long. 14 points there. Um, you're getting you're getting through so many different key numbers there that there's just a lot of ways that you can get a cover or a backdoor cover in this particular game. Maybe get a spark from Kyle Allen. Maybe you don't in this one. I don't know. But those are the two games that show up on my radar as being bettable. Everything else is really tough. Again, this week, not the best week for the best bet section of here. Um, all right, everybody. That wraps it up for Unexpected Points. I'll talk to you on Monday. We'll go over all the different games. It'd be good that we got like three games out of the way here with a full slate this week, no bye weeks. So then uh, we'll be able to spend a little bit more time on each game on Monday. If you like the pod, go ahead, rate, review it on Apple Podcasts. I think that helps bring attention to it. Others can get some of this analytical goodness. Give a thumbs up on YouTube. Comment on YouTube. I read those. I'll give you thumbs up back if it's you know, uh, intelligible, which they mostly are. I have to say we are probably some of the best commenters on the, on YouTube in the history of YouTube. If you know a lot about the comments that you see on that platform, go ahead and do that. Uh, send me tweet at me at Kevin Cole, PFF, fire me an email. If you want to get to long form, Kevin.cole at PFF.com. Otherwise I'll be talking at everyone on Monday. Have a great rest of the day.